All right, turn in your Bibles to uh, Micah chapter 6. For some of you, you're excited today. We're finally getting to the part of Micah you already knew. Congratulations. Uh, It's on page uh, 779. Sometimes when we read stories of Christians of other countries... We read stories of them being incarcerated or brought up on charges uh, for being a Christian. And sometimes that causes us, who thankfully live in a country where that's not a problem, causes us to think, well, what would that be like? What would it be like to be arrested and brought before a judge on the crime of believing in Jesus? It's an interesting thought. It's something that we should consider. Would we be bold enough in our faith to stand upon what we believe even in the face of prosecution? But a couple years ago, I, I heard a twist on this scenario that I think is even more helpful for us. If you were brought before a court again, on the charges of Christianity, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you were and the prosecuting lawyer was bringing testimony from other people or or parts of your life, maybe conversations you had, would there be enough evidence to find you guilty of being a Christian? Now, I think both scenarios are helpful, but honestly, I think the second one is more helpful for us in our current situation, in our culture, and in our country. And what that gets to is a Christian understanding of good works. And I think it's one where there is a lot of confusion. I think it was Tim Keller who once said, assume everyone is a legalist, or that everyone thinks you're a legalist. And by legalist, I mean that if I'm good enough, God will love me, or whatever I perceive as God. And that's not the Christian way. In fact, I would say that I have never found another religion or idea or thought process that was grace-based other than Christianity. The idea that we are not saved by what we do, but we are saved because what Christ did, and we are saved by grace through faith in him. So then there's the question, what is the role of good works in the life of the Christian? And usually people get the cart before the horse. Well, we want someone to be good, and then we'll talk to them about Jesus, and they can become a Christian. Or they still, whether admit to it or not, if I'm good enough, Jesus will love me. But the way that good works work in the life of the Christian is that they are in response to what God has already done for us in Christ. They are an act of worship. They are an act of love. Obedience is loving God back for the love he has shown us. And today, 
in this section of Micah, there's sort of going to be a blending of these two ideas of, of being on trial and then the good works that we are called to do as God's people. And again, the more famous verse of Micah, Micah 6, 8, in some ways is a summary of categories of good works that we must be doing as followers of Jesus Christ. So if you're following along in your outline there, provided in the bullets, and we're going to see our big idea this morning, is that in response to God's love and redemption, God's people do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. Now you notice if you look at your outline there, there's three points. We're only going to do parts one and two. Uh, If you want to do parts three in your own study or with your small group, that's great. That's why I included it. But we're only going to do parts one and two today. And Micah chapter six is broken up as an outline into three questions. We're going to see those probably. And the first question is, what has God done to you? So let's start by looking at verses 1 to 3 of Micah chapter 6. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains the indictment of the Lord and you you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. The first part of Micah chapter 6, again, we've seen some really wonderful metaphors in the book of Micah. And here is one where God is in the courtroom and he is calling on creation, in particular the mountains, to be the jury. And he has charges against his people. You see that in verses 2, an indictment of the Lord. Again, in verse 2, an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. The metaphor is God bringing a lawsuit against his people, and he invites all of creation to act as the jury to his justice and righteousness. And in verse 3, God is not the heartless prosecuting attorney. God asked his people, oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? The picture is of God saying to his people, how have I wronged you? What did I do to you that you would treat me this way? So, that leaves the question, what has God done to his people. In a sense, it almost puts God on trial to say, what have you done that your people act this way? And that's what verses 4 and 5 answers. God is going to tell them what he has done to them. So let's look at verses 4 and 5. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. 
And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. God gives a list of what he has done. It's the old joke of God doesn't get hysterical in an argument, he gets historical. And he rehearses the history that they all, they all knew. And he begins with the Exodus. Verse 4, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Again, how have I wronged you? His first answer to that question is, I saved you from slavery. And if you read the book of Exodus, you see the harsh conditions, the terrible conditions in which God saved his people and the miraculous way that he saved his people. I want you to look at the words in the middle of verse 4, and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Redemption, a good, good word we're going to come back to in a little bit, but this idea of being bought out of slavery, bought out of captivity and oppression, and let out, set free. Secondly, what God has done to his people. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Why, why these three? Why mention these three people? In one sense, you could say that these were the first three leaders of the people of Israel. You've got all these people, they've been set free. Where do we go? How long do we travel for? What do we do with this freedom? God provided leaders for his people to lead them out, to care for his people. Here's summarized with Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. God not only provided freedom from captivity, but provided leaders to lead them out of captivity. Verse 5. This one may not be as familiar to you. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. This refers to a story that we see in the book of Numbers, where an evil king, Balak, hired a false prophet named Balaam to curse God's people. And God prevented Balaam from cursing and, and made him say good things to the people of Israel. And so what we see here is this protection. So God set them free. He provided leaders. He protected them from his enemies. And then fourthly, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. Now, what's he talking about there? Shittim and Gilgal were the two places from where they traveled to go through the Jordan River to go into the Promised Land. So they went from Shittim 
to, through the river <laughs> to Gilgal. So when God is saying this, he's reminding of the provision of the promised land that he gave them. So in response to God's own question, how have I wearied you? How have I hurt you? What did I do to you? The list is only good and glorious and miraculous things. Looking at these as a whole, this list as a whole, it reminds us to remember all that God has done for us. God does everything for his glory and our good. But these were specific to the historical people of Israel. I, I've, I've never been saved from slavery in Egypt. So, so what does this mean for us today? How do we translate that into what God has done for us today? Let me suggest some parallels. So for the people of Israel, they were redeemed from slavery. They were bought, brought out of slavery. The way the New Testament uses the word redemption is in our slavery to sin and death. And that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are redeemed from a worse slavery. We are redeemed and saved and bought out of sin and death and into life and freedom in Christ. Secondly, they were given the leaders of Moses, Aaron, and Myriad. God has given us the local community of the church, the family, our part of the larger global family, and he has given leaders to that family just as he gave leaders to the people of Israel. We experience God's provision just as they did. God protected his people from his, their enemies. God protects us from our enemies today. God brings justice. God saves us from when we are being attacked. He is still our protector today. He gave the people of Israel the promised land. What does he give us? He doesn't promise us 40 acres and a mule. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that one of the reasons that God gave the promised land of the people of Israel was to point us to a better, eternal promised land. An eternal rest, an eternal place of peace and joy. Where we will live and dwell with God face to face. So the promise of the promised land points us to the promise of the new heavens and the new earth of eternity with God. So just as God asked the Israelites, what have I done to you? 
We need today, every day, daily ask, what has God done for us? And review and get historical about it. In one sense, this needs to put us in our place and remind us of the goodness and kindness of God that we receive every day. The problem happens when we forget. Now, that's another part of Israel's history. That's another sermon series. We'll get to that. But we forget what God has done for us because we don't remember. We don't rehearse it in our minds, and that's when we get off track. So the next question that Micah will ask in chapter 6, so the first one is God's question. Who asks of himself, what have, what have I done to you? The second one is directed to God's people. And again, in your outline, point two, number there, what does the Lord require of you? So this is what God has done now, what do we do in response to that? Let's look at verses 6 and 8. We'll start with verses 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with a calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Micah begins these verses by presenting how we should approach God, how we should respond to God. And he gives a couple of examples. I want to talk briefly about how in one sense, yes, God has called God's people at that time to do these things. But in one sense, no, it wasn't enough. So let's start with, shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old? On one hand, yes, they were to do that. That was a part of the law. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oils? Yes, this was a part of the sacrificial system. On one hand, yes, they were supposed to do that. Now this next one is a definitely not. Nothing is right about this. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? No. God never asked for child sacrifice in the Old Testament. Now we have some examples in the Bible of where God's people tried to bring in the practices of other cultures to worship God the way that the pagans did. So that one's just flat out no. I want to make sure that's clear. Okay? But here's the problem. It's an understanding of the sacrificial system. Why did God's people have to give sacrifices at the temple? And these questions show that in general, the people had missed the point. 
first reason, well, let me back up a second, because I think this is something to help us understand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this is something that gets confused pretty easily. So why sacrifice? Why bring wine and grains and animals to the altar? First thing we know is that sacrifices were never meant to be magical rituals. Back in that culture, you had to, if you had an idol, let's say you were a pagan and you had an idol, you had to take care of that idol. You had to meet its needs. So you had to take it to uh, get some food. You had to feed that idol. You had to take it to the bathroom and go hang out with its friend idols. You had to socialize it. And if you gave it what it needed, then it would give you what you needed. Okay, that's how idolatry works. We know from the Bible that God doesn't need anything from us. God doesn't need lambs. God doesn't need cattles to be cut up. So why do it? Here's why God had his people sacrifice. The first part is that the sacrificial system and obedience to it was done as an external demonstration of internal realities. So I go and I sacrifice the way God told me to because I love God, because I want to obey God, and as an act of worship to God. Right? It's not that God needs that thing. He doesn't need the meat. He's not hungry. God doesn't get hungry. So sacrifices and obedience to it were more about the heart than about the actual experience. There's nothing magical happens when you killed the lamb and burned it. So again, that's the first part of a sacrifice. A sacrifice is an external demonstration of an inward reality of love and faith. The second thing that sacrifices do is that it prepared God's people for the ultimate one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, we're not going to get into that today, that aspect as much as the first one, but those are the two main reasons that sacrifices existed, that God decided to have his people do that, was to demonstrate obedience and love and worship and to prepare us for the sacrifice that did not have to be repeated of Jesus Christ. So the problem is that God's people were doing these sacrifices like they were magic. Didn't matter what was in their hearts, they were just going through the motions and thinking that they were going to be okay with that. It's never been good enough. You know, it's like today, if we were to have our baptismal trough out here, and I took somebody who, who did not profess faith in Christ, and I just took him and I dunked him under the water, 
they wouldn't magically become a Christian. Because there's nothing magical about the water. But why do we dunk people under the water? Because it's an external demonstration of their faith in Christ and dying to themselves and living to Christ. It's not a magic ritual, and that's what God's people were treating the sacrificial system like, a magic system. If I do this, I'll be right with God. And they were missing the heart component. And that's where, that's where Micah 6.8 comes in. Let's look at Micah 6.8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. Now let's stop right there for a second. <laughs> do you hear that? You know what you're supposed to do. <laughs> I just want to pause there because I think that that is a huge problem we have in the West and in America in general. We are probably some of the most educated Christians who have ever lived in this world. For us, it's not a problem to know what God wants. The problem is actually doing it. The problem is actually living out our faith Monday to Saturday. Back to verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Do you see this, this summary of the Christian life is what's behind the actions? Again, there's nothing magical about the sacrificial system, but it's, it's living out of the, this character. It's living out of these ideals, partially that God himself shows, which we'll get to. So let's take some time to think about what does it look like in our lives to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Let's start with justice there. It's not an accident that God's people are called to be people of justice in the book of Micah. Because what have we seen time and time again throughout Micah, but that God is a God of justice. So if the God we worship, if the God who created us, the God who is Lord over all, does justice, well, <laughs> why wouldn't we? Why do we think we would do anything different? There's two areas, I think, where we can do justice. The first one I'll call personal justice. And this is living a life of justice within our personal sphere of influence. So in our daily lives, in our personal relationships. So what does it look like for you to, to personally do justice in your life? One of the helpful places is the end of Micah chapter 6 and verses 11 and 12. Let me read that to you. 
This is God speaking. Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. There's a couple examples there. They're sort of negative examples of what we're not to do. But one of the things that pops out to me about being a person of justice is how do I... How do I deal with my work and when other people are working for me? How do I live economically is, is a main way for us to do justice. Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales? That was about measuring the weight of money or the weight of the good being given. So if your scale is off, oh yeah, here's a pound of flour, but it's not. That's what they're talking about specifically here. But how do you treat your employer? How do you treat your employees if you have employees? How do you treat the person at the cash register? How do you treat the customer service person on the phone? How we deal with our money and how we live in the marketplace of our world says a lot about our view of justice. Do you cut corners in your work? Do you treat employees with kindness and fairly? Or do you show favoritism? Your job and your participating in the marketplace are wonderful opportunities to do justice. The second one, and again, I'm just priming the pump here. I'm giving some examples. These are great discussions for you to have with friends, with your small group. The other one I'm going to call systemic justice. Christians are also called to be people of justice in larger issues outside of themselves. Sometimes this takes the form of voting for us in America. Sometimes it takes volunteering with things that we believe will promote justice in our society. But again, this type of justice is more concerned about justice for others. See, justice always pushes us outside of ourselves. If you're selfish and conceited, you're not going to help others achieve justice. There is a long history of Christians engaged in this part of the process. We think of guys like William Wilberforce, who helped bring an aid to the end to the slave trade in England back when he lived. You think of a guy, I, I actually heard this the other day, John Calvin referred to as one of the founders of public education. Because he was one of the first people to think that all people should be educated, not just the rich who could afford tutors. You think of all the reform movements in the 1800s where Christians participated in. There was the abolitionist movement here in America. There was prison reform and education reform. Today, one of the great ways I see this is the amount of Christians involved in the adoption and foster care process. 
That's a justice issue. There's a long history of God's people applying their faith and the idea of justice not just to their own lives, but to the lives of others. Do justice. Let's go on to the second one. Love kindness. Now, if you're like me, you memorize this, love mercy. Let me just speak to that really quickly. I think kindness is a better translation. The word here is the same word that is used in the Psalms as his loving kindness endures forever. But in one sense, mercy is is a fine translation. It's not wrong. Um, Because oftentimes, kindness takes the form of mercy. And again, mercy defined as giving someone what they, not giving them what they do deserve. Okay, so if you, if that sort of jarred you a little bit, okay, that's footnote on that one. So what does it mean to be kind? Well, a couple things I want us to see is that in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, we see that love is patient and kind. In Galatians 5, kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. One of the ways you know that you truly have the Holy Spirit in you is that you are kind. You are not harsh. You are compassionate. You are gentle. You're caring. But I've always thought it interesting that it's not just be kind. It's to love kindness. Why would he say love kindness? Part of that thinks of what does it mean to love? In general, thinking broadly here, when we love something, we give priority to it. So, we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is number one in our lives. Micah is reminding us not just a general be kind, but to love kindness. To be all about kindness. To prioritize kindness in our lives. That it should be one of those first things that we engage in. Not to be harsh, but to be caring and gentle. To love kindness is to be driven by kindness. And again, as with justice, this pushes us outside of ourselves. Because true kindness is kindness shown to someone else. You've stunted your growth if you're only kind to yourself. (laughs) And you haven't really understood what kindness is. Don't just be kind. Love, kindness. Look for opportunities for kindness and compassion and caring. Thirdly, verse 8, to walk humbly with your God. In one sense, this is foundational to the others. Because we're not going to live out our love for God if we don't have a proper understanding of who God is. 
There's a great C.S. Lewis quote about humility that some of you have probably already heard of. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility is recognizing I am not the center of the universe, but God is. It's taking a posture to where God is God and I am not. Micah, as we've studied this, and we've seen these big, grand pictures of God, we've seen him melt mountains. We've seen him judge the nations. We've seen him destroy armies. Again, it's not a coincidence that we're called to humble ourselves under this great God. When we think of ourselves properly, which is humility, is thinking of yourself properly, correctly. Only then will we love kindness. Only then will we do justice, not just for ourselves, but for others. But to draw us back to the beginning of the chapter. All of this is done because what God has done for us. We do these things because God was so loving and gracious to us. And we see that ultimately in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so it's only fitting that today be a communion Sunday where we're called to remember what God has done for us on the cross. I want to invite those who are helping with communion to come forward at this time. As Micah called the people of Israel to remember what God had done for them in their history, today with communion we remember what God has done for us. As the Israelites were to remember their redemption from slavery of Egypt, we remember the redemption from sin and death through the death of Jesus Christ. As the Israelites were to remember the gift of the promised land, Through communion, Paul tells us we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we join him in the eternal promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. Now, as is our custom, because that is what communion is about, uh, we invite anyone who is a believer in Jesus 
to take communion with us. If you're not a believer in Jesus, we kindly ask you to just let the elements pass. And then me or the people you're sitting next to would love to talk to you about how you place your faith in Jesus Christ. We'll pass out both elements together and we'll take them together. So hold on to them when you get them.
in his instructions on taking communion, Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he took when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul continues, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father God, we thank you for the gift of communion. We thank you for this activity that helps us to remember and not forget what you have done for us. That you sent your son to take our place, to be our substitute, and to die, to shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, as is our custom, we'll take the Benevolent Fund offering.